please stand by. Good day, everyone. Welcome to today's BMC Software BPPM95 Configuring for Event Management Call. Today's conference is being recorded. At this time, I'd like to turn things over to Mr. Cedric Rawls. Please go ahead, sir. All right. Thank you, Kellyanne. Uh, good day, everyone. Good afternoon. Good morning. Good evening, wherever you might be. Um, thank you all for joining the call. Uh, let me start off uh, with a brief apology. Uh, we did have a hiccup with the, uh, the phone line, so it should be all clear now, uh, but I do want to apologize for that up front. Um, <clears throat> we, uh, we should be good to go timing-wise. It's enough timing for Hudson to complete the session, so please pay attention. I do want to cover a, a couple things. If we do have a problem with the phone lines again, uh, we should all be able to connect back into the phone line. Uh, however, if it, is, if it is significant enough, we will postpone the session and reschedule. So I wanted to make sure everyone knew that up front. <clears throat> um, as we have done with other sessions, uh, we do have Q&A that will be handled in the, web, in the, uh, the WebEx Q&A window, which will uh, respond to everything as quickly as possible. Um, and uh, those that uh, we don't get to, we will make sure and uh, answer um, after the session is over and, and post to uh, uh, our Q&A um, uh, responses that we, we do for, as we do for every session. Uh, the last thing is uh, this will be recorded as, as we're being recorded right now. Uh, as all, uh, always with the sessions, we will post them to our BMC communities um, uh, post that we have for the entire series that we have. So with that, uh, Hudson, I will turn it over to you. Thank you very much, Cedric. Okay, so this session, as you see on the title here, is focused on configuring for event management and going into more depth than what we've touched on in some of the previous sessions. We've talked a little bit in some of the previous sessions about architecture, um, you know, overall architecture, which included a little bit concerning event management as well as in the configuration best practices. There was some talk there as well um, that, that touched on some event management topics. But this is a more focused uh, session on event management. And as usual, we, we consider this to be more or less first-level training. It's uh, based on best practices or focused more on best practices versus how-to. Uh, that said, there are some how-to detailed steps in here that we're going to take a look at in a, on a few topics. Um, it's covering core BBPM components, meaning the patrol agents and data collection. You know, those are the components that, that generally generate events for us, um, all, although we can consume events from external sources as well, and we'll talk a little bit about that also here. Not a lot of discussion about configuration and patrol and things like that. It's much more about what do you do with these events going upstream? How do you configure the infrastructure upstream from the data sources and the, and the event sources? How do you configure to manage um, events properly and keep yourself out of trouble and so forth? Um, this certainly doesn't address every scenario. Some other things to be aware of here, this is not a, a training class on how to write code in MRL or master rule language, okay? So we're not getting down into a lot of details in those areas. We're hitting the really big pieces that have the most um, impact on an environment from an architecture perspective, as well as some very key configurations, some tuning discussions, some scalability and performance topics and things like that, okay? So when you look at event management and all the things that we can do with event management and the flexibility of our event management cells, 
um, and the things like the MRL code and all the policies you could write and, and take advantage of in the product that are delivered out of the box and so forth, there's a lot of things that, that can be looked at there. And, and obviously in an hour and a half session, we won't touch on every one of those topics. So we're going to hit the really big things, the things that are most impactful, especially from the perspective of when you first start to install the product and when you, you know, get, you know, getting the basic configurations so forth in place. Prior knowledge of BPM components is, uh, in terms, is certainly valuable here, especially, you know, understanding generally what a cell is and understanding some of the other, other concepts that we'll talk about here in the session. Okay, so we've got a pretty packed agenda today. We're going to touch on the event management architecture, um, how to handle secure zones, ensuring continuous event operations, also ensuring what we call event continuity. Um, we'll talk about some things concerning custom knowledge bases, the knowledge base being the knowledge base of a cell or cells, um, some things that you should do there and, and so forth. Policies versus rules. When to use policies, when to use rules. Okay. Uh, performance and scalability is a number of slides on that as well. Um, we'll also have some, some key points here about cell tuning and troubleshooting. Not every single thing that you could possibly tune there, um, but the key things to look out for based on the most common problems that we see out in the field. Um, locating event processing functions, where, where to put the different event processing functions. As you may already know from previous sessions, our event management capabilities is based on a distributed design where we can distribute these event management cells across the environment. And different cells can have different purposes and, and contain different rule processing functions and so forth. So we'll talk about you know, our recommendation on where those things should be. Um, then some general recommendations, and then we'll wrap up with some event reduction tips, um, primarily because the, the first step that you should think about in the environment is you want to reduce the events as much as possible, um, not just for scalability purposes, but also for you know, work management, workflow, process purposes. You don't want to be inundated with unnecessary events. Okay? Um, and, and we ultimately recommend controlling that at the source as much as possible first and then working upstream from there. Okay, so let's move on here. As you've seen in previous uh, webinar sessions, this is what our overall architecture looks like. Um, and from an event perspective, we could be monitoring with patrol either remotely or out on the, you know, physically having the, the agents deployed to the managed nodes. They generate events in addition to collecting performance data, but they generate events and send events upstream through these integration service um, servers or hosts, okay? We recommend putting what is called a correlation cell in the environment so that you can correlate events that come in from multiple sources, multiple agents from across the environment and, um, you know, leverage that capability to do things like set up a correlation that says don't, don't actually send an event up to the BPM server unless these multiple conditions or these multiple events exist in the environment under certain conditions, okay? And that's, that's another way of controlling flow of events up to the BPPM server. And again, I want to reiterate, the control of events to the BPPM server is not just for scalability purposes, although that is one of the reasons to do it. Um, another really big reason is you, you just don't want to inundate the user's 
with unnecessary you know, noise up in the BBPM server. So one of my favorite examples is why would you send a bunch of informational events up there unless you really need them for, for event processing and so forth. Okay. Um, all right, so that's the overall architecture. Drilling down into some more detail here and, and including high availability, if you remember some of our previous discussions, what happens is the, the BBPM, um, or excuse me, the Patrol 9.5 agents, they're able to propagate events and data to the same port on the integration service processes that are running on the integration service nodes. And then the integration service processes can forward the data upstream to the BPM server directly, and they can also propagate events only over to event management cells. Now, you've got some flexibility here, but what you see on the slide here is our best practice recommendation, which basically entails a number of key points. One of them is that each individual integration service process will have a corresponding event management cell associated with it so that it propagates its events to a, um, to a single event management um, cell that's really part of an HA cell pair. Okay? So if it can't talk to the primary cell, it will automatically fail over and talk to the secondary cell. Right? And that's, that's based on our you know, standard out-of-the-box HA configuration where you've got a primary cell and the secondary cell is a hot standby cell. And then if the agent can't talk to the primary integration service node uh, for some reason, it will automatically fail over to the secondary integration service node, which is a true active instance that could be consuming continuously events from um, you know, other agents or whatever, and then that node will, will operate in the same manner that the primary does. In other words, it will first attempt to send the events to the primary cell in the HA cell pair, okay? And if it can't, it'll fail over to the secondary cell, which is a hot standby cell. So these, these dashed lines represent um, a scenario where the cell itself is failed over from the primary to the secondary. So a key point here, if you're not remembering this, is that this HA cell pair that we provide out of the box, it's a primary secondary uh, arrangement where the secondary cell is a hot standby. Okay? Now, again, you, you, the product is very flexible, meaning that you've got the ability to send events to other destinations if you wished. Okay, so for example, you could uh, set it up so that events are sent directly from the integration service nodes up to the BPPM server, but we strongly recommend not doing that because we find in almost all environments that some level of pre-processing needs to be done against the events. Um, it could be something as simple as event enrichment, or it could be something like um, regulation where you've got logon failures coming in, but you don't want to send a logon failure up to the BBPM server unless you see a certain number of them over a period of time, okay? Because we know that people, you know, enter a, a password or, or a, an ID incorrectly occasionally, they fat finger something, and if that happens once or twice here and there and then it goes away, that's not really a problem. That's not, doesn't indicate that, that there's an, really an issue. But if you see it a lot happening, 
over and over from a particular node, that could be a problem. So um, we want to control event flow and, and manage the events appropriately, and we need the ability to also correlate the events like I talked about a moment ago in the environment before actually sending them all, you know, the, the truly actionable ones up to the BBPM server, okay? Now, this slide represents a scenario where we've got a one-to-one -one relationship between the primary and secondary integration service nodes in concert with their HA cell pair. But you may have, in, in larger environments, you may have a scenario where you actually install multiple um, integration service processes on the same integration service node. Okay, and that's very common. Um, we recommend that actually in a very large environment where you need, need um, that level of processing and, and you also need to have a desire to contain those integration service processes in a single location or a more centralized location in the environment and you have a large enough server um, to support that. Okay? So under a scenario like that, you basically have two options. You could continue this strategy where each one of the integration service process pairs has a corresponding HA cell pair for them. So there's a one-to-one -one relationship between each integration service node and the, the event management cells. So that, that's one approach. A second approach would be to set it up so that these integration service nodes, meaning the hosts, okay, they have multiple integration service processes on them, but they only have one HA cell pair to support all of the integration service processes. And in a lot of environments, that would be enough um, to support the, the processing and, and uh, the load required of handling events and whatnot, okay? Uh, so either option is, is um, acceptable and, and they both can be configured when you do the installation, okay? So uh, the next thing I wanna point out here is that for some folks, it gets a little bit confusing when you go to install the integration service processes and their corresponding cells. So let's take a quick look at what, what the screen actually looks like after you've installed it and you're ready to configure the integration service hosts and, and integration service processes through the central monitoring administration console, okay? What you see here is I've entered um, a, a integration service node that was already installed in the box, uh, installed in, in the environment. Here's the, um, the host that it actually lives on, okay? And the basic configuration, out-of-the-box port and so forth. The key thing to note here is the out-of-the-box default configuration says to use the current integration service settings, okay? Um, and if you choose this, and basically don't change it, if you use that, you will end up with this type of a scenario here, okay? Meaning this um, integration service process is going to propagate its events to its local primary or its local, um, its, its local cell, not just the primary cell, but actually the HA cell pair, all right? So that's a default setting, and that's really best practice as well. You also have the option to enter a different cell name. So this is where you could say, I want to send events from, you know, patrol agents up to the integration service node and then have the integration service node process propagate its events off to another destination. 
So you could pick a different cell here, or again, and this would be the least recommended and least used option to send them directly to the, to the uh, BVPM server. Okay, so that's how this works. And if you just use the default settings here, then you're, you're going to um, basically get, a, get, a, um, get the, the, the configuration that I described on the previous slides. Was there a question? Okay, I, I'm sorry about that. I thought I heard somebody there. All right. Um, okay, so that's fine. Now, what about third-party events, meaning events that are not coming in from patrol, but coming in from other external sources, right? Very much the same concept, okay, uh, with a couple of differences. One is we're consuming those events from the what are called adapters. So there's an SNMP adapter. There is a Telnet adapter, which isn't used very often. Um, there's and the SNMP adapter doesn't do gets. It, it receives traps. It receives unsolicited traps. Um, and there's various other adapters. There's also the um, uh, web services integration and um, um, a command line utility and so forth. So all of those components act like what I'm calling an adapter here. They can consume messages from some external source and convert those messages to events and propagate them off to a HA cell pair. Okay? And they propagate those off to the HA cell pair based on the alias name of the HA cell pair, not the individual names of each cell or host names for each cell um, that's in the pair. Okay? Um, the difference between integration service node processes and the adapters is that you have less flexibility here. The adapters are going to send their events to one of the two cells in the HA cell pair, and they do that by attempting to connect to the alias name associated with HA cell pair, and if it can't connect to the primary, then it will automatically connect to the secondary. And those are the, that's, that's basically how it works, and there's not a lot of options around that, okay? Um, so you can't forward it off to a different set somewhere else. You just basically have to define that it's gonna con connect to the HA cell pair and forward its events upstream that way. All right, so let's move on a little bit here. Um, when you're doing the install of the integration service processes, this is the best way, to, you know, the most seamless way to configure your event management cells for HA on the different integration service um, machines, you know, hosts. So when you're doing the primary um, and, and setting up its configuration, you, the first thing you want to do is define a common cell name that both of the cells in the HA cell pair will share, okay? This has been a little bit confusing for some folks, so you need to give it a cell name, um, and, and that's, that's, that's something you need to define before you even start the install process. You need to, you need to figure out, what am I going to call these cells, okay? When you get to the screen during the install process, it might be a little bit confusing for some folks. It's best to choose the high, uh, high availability configuration option first because when you click this guy here, it's going to refresh and clear these fields up here, all right? Um, well, it'll, it'll at least clear the cell name field. So if you enter the cell name first and then you click this guy right here, it's going to change this to a blank and you'll have to re-enter it. So it's best to, in your navigation to click this first. And then notice that you're picking, when you choose high availability, you, you then have to decide, is this node that I'm installing now, is it my primary 
from a, um, a cell perspective or is it the secondary? And if you choose primary, then you're telling, you have to tell the primary where the secondary cell um, actually resides from a host perspective, okay? So click this first and put in the appropriate host name for the secondary machine where the secondary cell and secondary integration service process runs and then enter your your common cell name, which again is, is an alias. That's not a host name, it's an alias that you just make up, okay? You'll also notice here that you, you can control the port number for the primary in this case and the encryption method and so forth, um, but you're not specifying a port number down here for the secondary. It's gonna get the default port number, which is 1828, and if you need to change that later, you can very easily, but you need to change it in the MCEL dir file, okay? All right, so that's, um, that's what it looks like when you're installing the primary. Then after you've installed the primary, and it's best to install the primary first, after you've installed the primary, it's a good idea to let it finish the installation and for the cell to actually be up and running. This is not a requirement, but it, it's not a bad idea to follow this process. Let it finish the install and, and make sure that it's up and running and then come back and install the, the um, integration service node and its corresponding cell over on the secondary or failover node. And as you do that, click configuration for high availability first, then choose the secondary server, you're telling it this is gonna be the secondary cell, okay? And then you have to give it the primary host cell name, all right? And then of course give it the same common name that you use, the exact same name that you use for the primary cell. Okay, so these guys share, again they share a, a common alias name, and then any component that needs to send events to them um, will utilize that alias name to, um, to communicate and send the events up. And the way that's actually accomplished is when you look at the MCEL dir file in a high availability configuration, you'll see the, you know, the cell designation here. Here's my common cell name. I use my HA cell as the example here. And the encryption, of course. And then here's the primary node and the secondary node, just the host name and the port number. So if it can't talk to the first one, it's gonna fail over and talk to the second one. And there is some timeout configurations here so that if there's some very, very brief momentary hiccup on the network and it can't send the event, it'll attempt to resend the event before it fails over to um, the secondary node or it'll at least attempt to, re to connect and, and propagate up to um, the primary before it finally, finally gives up and fails over and, and, and sends the event to the secondary node. Okay, and, and, and when you're all done with this, um, this is what it looks like in the BBPM UI. Now, I'm, I'm skipping the steps that show how to, you know, bring the cells into the BBPM UI under the other cells um, uh, view and so forth. But the point here is, is once you've configured this, if you've done it correctly, the, the two cells will share the same cell alias name and they'll actually show up as one cell under that alias name within the BBPM operational UI as well as within the administration console. 
Okay, so some do's and don'ts around this event management architecture. Definitely ensure the exact same knowledge base configurations between the two cells. You have to do that manually. So between the two cells, you know, obviously I mean the primary and secondary cells that, are, that make up the HA cell pair. You have to manage that manually. And regarding knowledge base, I'm talking about the files that, you know, construct things like your, um, your, your, your event classes, your rules, data classes, collectors, all of that kind of stuff. All right. Now, the synchronization process between the primary and secondary cells supports synchronizing events, updates to events, and that's a back and forth synchronization, as well as anything that goes into data classes. So data that's actually loaded in match tables and other data classes will be synchronized across the two cells as well. So that part is, is, is done for you out of the box. It's the files that live on the operating system, you know, on disk that constitute the knowledge base, um, including the .load files and all of that, is what you have to handle manually. And you could just manually copy them over or you could create an automated copy method, um, you know, copy them over periodically or whatever. But you have to be cognizant of that and you need to make certain that the um, the two cells have the exact same knowledge base. Um, also, be sure to leverage the event adapter's ability to propagate, and this also applies to the integration service processes, their ability to, to propagate events to the currently active cell automatically. In other words, propagate events to the common cell name, not to the, you know, a host name IP address that, a, a, that the primary is listening on versus the secondary, okay? Um, so don't, don't try to direct event flows to one side of the HA cell pairs. For example, forwarding events to the, the secondary cell while the primary cell is active. It'd be kind of a goofy implementation to, to even set that up. I just want to point out you should never try to do this, okay? And, and the, the opposite of that should not be done. Don't try to forward events to the primary cell while the secondary cell is active. So don't try to manually control, you know, very specifically which individual cell within an HA cell pair that the events are being propagated to. Let the configuration of the HA cell pair and this concept of a common alias name for cells handle that for you with using, utilizing the appropriate configuration in the mCell dir files. Also, don't use different cell names for the primary and the secondary cell. So remember back on the screens where we were looking at the, you know, the installation there, you have to manually put in the alias or common cell name that I've talked about here. Make sure that's the same. Don't use different one, different cell names for two cells that belong to, a, to an HA cell pair. And also, it's a very good idea for any HA cell pair that it have a unique alias cell name. It's probably relatively obvious, but just you know, make sure you, you figure out what names you're going to use for all the cells across your environment and uh, name them accordingly as you do the implementation. Okay, so now handling secure zones. Um, there's a number of customers who had and may still have the BII for Patrol 3 or Patrol 7 components set up in their environment and specifically this is more focused on BI for Patrol 3, where it sits up, you know, somewhere in the environment below the BVPM server, um, or even if you're not using BVPM, um, it sits in the environment above the agents, and it actually collects data from the agents, okay? 
And so what you're looking at here is um, not BI for Patrol 3, but just kind of throwing that out because some customers are using that. It has a unique ability to, and, and this is it's a design, it's not just a configuration, it's the way it works. It polls agents for events, okay? It's not sitting there waiting for agents to send it events, right? The out-of-the-box behavior standard install with BPPM 9.5 and the event management cells basically works like this diagram shows. And the arrows represent not the flow of data and events, but the actual direction of the arrows represents the direction from which connection requests are made. So the agents open the connection to the integration service processes for both data traffic and events, and that's to exactly the same port like we've talked about in the past. Um, and then the integration service processes um, for event traffic, they open a connection to the event management cell. But the connection for data, meaning trended performance data, that connection is open from the BPPM server, and this, this line is actually drawn incorrectly. It comes directly from the BPPM server, okay? That data connection is made from the BPPM server down to the integration service node, okay? However, out of the box, the event cells that are going to propagate events upstream to the correlation HA cell pair, they open the connection upstream, okay? So um, when, you, when you've got a secure zone that you have to deal with here, that may be, become a problem. So, so some secure zones and security policies and rules and so forth require that nothing outside the zone can make a connection into the zone. But, the, but, but tools, processes, and so forth operating within the zone are allowed to make outbound connections. And so we've got the ability to actually reverse the direction from which this connection is made through the configuration of the event management cells. And the way that's done is through what we call a passive client configuration. It's in the documentation. If you go search the documentation for passive client or even just the word passive, it's probably the top thing that pops up under the BBPM uh, 9.5 documentation. And when you configure this, it basically changes the direction from which connections are opened, but events will still flow upstream as normal, meaning propagate policies and so forth will propagate the events upstream across that connection that was made from the upper tier down to the lower tier. Um, the connection is ensured by a heartbeat. So what ends up happening is the event cell sitting down here is considered to be the client, and, and its M-cell, you know, DER configuration and so forth, it doesn't actually make the connection up here. It's just sitting here passively, and the cell up top is the one that has made the connection. And once that connection is established, any time a propagation needs to occur, this lower tier cell will propagate its, event up, its events up and across that connection, okay? And that connection process is managed um, as far as ensuring that it remains connected, is managed through a heartbeat, and if for some reason the heartbeat is lost, a, a reconnection will be attempted, 
okay? And that will be attempted X number of times, and then if there's a failure, you know, you'll get, a, you'll get alarms and so forth on all of this as well up in the BPPM server, um, or at least up into the, into the cell that's trying to make these connections and so forth. It will support multiple connections, okay? So through the configuration, and we will talk about the configuration in detail here in a moment, um, through the configuration, once it's done, you, you can actually have multiple what are called client cells down here that have this passive connection set up for them so that they can feed events up to a single HA cell pair um, up here in the secure zone. Okay, So at the end of the day, we're, we're able to support these secure zones and the requirements around this quite nicely, actually. Now, obviously, you have to think about you know, where you're going to deploy these different pieces in the environment and so forth. But this is the, the general concept here. Now, some terminology. It, it may be a little bit confusing when you start reading the documentation. It's not that the docs are necessarily confusing, but keep in mind that a cell consumes events, but a cell could also be a client, like I've talked about. So when, when we use the term client in our documentation, what we're really referring to is a cell, or it could be a gateway type of adapter and so forth, that is going to send the events. So the client, in this case, is this event management cell here, and it wants to send its events up to this cell. Okay, And then the cell in our documentation, we're, we are referring to the actual event management cell that will be receiving the events. So how do you configure this? Well, it's quite simple, actually. Um, the first thing you have to do is on the client component, which could be a cell or it could be one of these gateway adapters, okay? It's also referred to as the passive client, by the way, all right? In its mcell dir file, you would reference the destination cell, as you see here, where I put the arrows. So the destination cell, the configuration is very similar to what you would have with um, any destination cell with one major exception. Instead of putting in the host name and the port number, you're going to put the number zero here. You just give it a zero. And that basically tells the, the client cell that, hey, I'm a passive client for this connection. And I'm never going to try to actually propagate an event to you know, this destination here represented by the host name and, I, and, and port uh, number. All right. This this line's commented out. The hash mark comments this line out. I just wanted to show this here so that you could see the differences and so forth. Okay. So after you've done the install, you may have a configuration that looks like the one that I've commented out here, and you can just copy that line and change the host name to um, a, and port number designation to a zero here, and you're good to go on the client side. So that configures the client for this concept of, of acting like a passive client and supporting the, the connection as we've described, what do we do on the cell side, okay? You, you want to first ensure that the normal configuration for client cells is in the mcell dir file on the destination cell. So you don't do any changes in the mcell dir file up on the destination cell. You leave that as it normally would be from a standard install, okay? And then you add records to a data class that's delivered out of the box, you add these records to the data class, the data class is labeled as a cell passive client data class, okay? And so where is that? Well, if you look in the admin console, you'll see under, and this is, I, I set this up with a BBPM server here, as you might, might guess, 
Um, looking at my data classes, I drill on down to cell data. Under that, I've got the cell heartbeat subdata class. And then the, a child data class of it that's out of the box is the cell passive client data class. And all you have to do is add a record to this data class. And in that record, specify the alias cell name because, you know, my, my client cell is, is a hot, it's, it's a, um, you know, it's a, it's, it's a um, HA cell pair, basically, as you can see here, right? I just give it the cell name, and that's really all I have to do. So for every cell or HA cell pair, as it would be in most environments because you do want high availability, um, you would just basically put in the alias cell name here uh, for each individual uh, set of cells that, that you want to set this up for and save that, and you're basically done with entering configuration data at that point. The next step is to go ahead and um, restart the cell. So, so you could enter multiple cell alias um, names into the cell passive client records as necessary into the, you know, the receiving cell that's going to receive the events. And then I recommend that you restart all the cells. Now, the documentation says you can reload the cell. There's an M control reload command that you could run to do this. Um, for whatever reason, I have not been successful making that happen every time. So I've, I've just made this a habit of restarting the cells, and, and that includes the cell, you know, all of the cells that you're doing the configuration for this on, both the client passive cells as well as the, the destination cells that are going to receive the events. Once you've done that, the process works and it works very well. Okay. Now, the only best practice recommendation around this specific configuration that I have is don't use it unless you need it. Okay. There's not a problem with it. There's, I haven't run into issues with it, but you've got to keep in mind that the connections that are being made are based on you know, the up, upper component making a connection to the lower tier cells and then maintaining a heartbeat. So there's a little bit more complexity going on there in the connectivity that has to be handled and you know, managed by the product. And if you don't need it, don't instrument it. Don't over-instrument things and, and do things that are unnecessary. Okay, so we've talked about um, you know, ensuring, uh, ensuring the architecture and handling the situation where you've got secure zones and those kinds of things. A very important topic around the BBPM server and handling events is what I call continuous event operations, or what we would all call continuous event operations, meaning, you know, when you step back at big picture and you say, why am I monitoring? Well, the reason you're monitoring is so that you can find out when things go wrong, especially when something's not available. A service goes down, a process crashes, a disk drive fills up, uh, you know, some really critical event an availability type of event. We want the performance metrics as well, but the really critical stuff is availability monitoring. And we absolutely have to ensure that we get availability events immediately or as close to immediately as possible when something goes down. That's really our overall you know, high-level purpose of monitoring is, is we got some eyes and ears out there that are looking at stuff for us, and we have to get those events, okay? And we have to ensure continuous event operations. Um, so when the BBPM servers, as most folks know, when it's restarted for whatever reason, whether it's a maintenance process, you're adding, applying a patch, or um, you've had a failover, or maybe you have some really you know, catastrophic situation where an entire cluster 
the operating system cluster that a BBFM server installed on has, has crashed or has some very severe problem and we've switched over maybe to a DR mode or something like that. Under any of these conditions, um, it could just be patching a Windows machine and having to do a reboot on the Windows machines that the BBFM server runs on. Um, that, it, that institutes a restart of the BBFM server and that's going to cost at least about 15 minutes. Um, it could be up to 45 minutes in some environments, but with the latest release of BPPM 9.5, we're seeing the startup times considerably less than what they used to be. However, there is still this window of time when the BPPM server is not available, okay? Um, and event visualization through it is obviously not available during that time. Events, however, are buffered at the cells that are propagating up to the BBPM server during the outage. So it's not like you're going to lose any events. It's just that you, you don't see them and, and you can't process them within the BBPM server during this period of time. Um, and obviously the BBPM server, any automated event processing and so forth, is delayed during this period. Um, reception of inbound events is, events is delayed, you know, anything like runbook automations, ticketing, ticketing, notifications, et cetera, can't be processed from the BBPM server during this period of time. And for most, you know, environments, this is a pretty significant issue. Now, before I go into some, some discussion about how to get around this and how to handle this, be aware that we are, we know this is, is a significant, you know, issue to deal with, and we are um, updating our product and have plans, you know, going forward with our product to, to, um, to, to alleviate this particular problem, and it's mainly to ensure that we don't have the downtime that we're looking at here. That's really the big problem, okay? So how do we get around this? Now, the next slide I'm going to go through here and talk about, I don't really consider this to be, quote, unquote, a best practice, okay? So before I get into this, there are different ways that this could be implemented. And what I'm showing you here is it's probably the simplest and the most risk-free implementation, um, and you'll see why here in a moment. Uh, but, but as we talk through this, just be aware you've got options here. Okay, so this is not really a best practice. This is just some recommendations on what you need to look out for and a general overall recommendation on what you can do. And we do have some customers already doing this kind of thing. So what you can do is you can set up a standby secondary event management cell pair represented over here on the right-hand side. Okay, and you can propagate your events from the correlation cell um, or multiple correlation cells over to the standby cell. Okay, and, and this being an HA cell pair is going to provide you continuous event operations because it doesn't have the downtime associated um, like you do with, with a BVM server restart or outage. Okay. You also are able to propagate events from the BBPM server to the standby HA cell pair. Okay. Um, and if you do that, you should be only propagating events that represent events that, that are, are related to, to things that only get generated within the BBPM server. So, for example, predictive alarms are only generated within the BBPM server. Um, other types of events, um, uh, signature thresholds that have been crossed, abnormality events, um, and then potentially other events such as um, uh, maybe some self-monitoring events, okay? Now, the only reason and you need to think in terms of, of workflow processes and not the technology, okay? So think in terms of workflow processes and what you want to accomplish and how you want to accomplish it when you're standing up 
um, in ensuring in ensuring continuous event operations during this 15 to 20 minute or so downtime of the BTPM server. What are your workflow requirements there? Okay, you need to outline those first. What are the business requirements before you start instrumenting things here? So, uh, just for example. But the only reason for propagating events from the BBPM server over to the standby cell pair is so that those events will be visible to users in the environment and actionable at some level um, during the outage of this guy. If you don't need that, if you don't need to be concerned with continuing to maintain visibility of events that were previously generated, then there's really no reason to propagate those events over. Okay, if your if your business strategy and process is to do nothing more than process only critical alarms and process them manually, and those critical alarms are only the ones that are generated during the time period that this guy has an outage, then there's really no need to propagate any events from the BBVM server over here. Okay. Um, so you, again, you've got you know a lot of flexibility here. So you can configure a propagation policy, obviously, um, at the correlation cell to do this. That propagation policy could be set up in a one-of manner, so that it's going to try to send to the BBPM server first, and then if it can't, it will send it over to the standby cell, okay, and not propagate up to the BBPM server and not buffer the events to send up to the BBPM server. Okay. Or you could decide, I'm going to go ahead and send them to both destinations. And again, the reason for sending them to both destinations is so that, that all of the events at any one time would be available in both systems, meaning the standby cell pair as well as the BBPM server. And obviously, when the BBPM server is down, you can't visualize them there. But they would be, you know, both all the events would basically be visible during this time frame, during any one time frame when both are up. Okay. Um, all right. So then, some other things to think about here, which I'll kind of throw out. And I hope I'm not, you know, confusing people. I just want to throw out some some points here. One really big key point is, you know, you've got options here on what you can do. Your needs should drive what you do technically, and you should get with us or and get get with uh, BMC basically, services type folks or um, you know folks in, like myself that can help you out with this and, and help you determine what's the best option for you based on your absolute requirements. So, for example, uh, one thing that could be done technically is you could actually propagate and, and publish service models to the BBPM server and to this guy simultaneously. But there's caveats in doing that. And the major caveat is that if you have multiple BBPM servers in your environment, you're going to end up with multiple, all of the service models over here as well as over here. And the out-of-the-box publishing process is designed so that it it, it sends um, it, it's going to it's going to attempt to publish to to um, to both basically simultaneously and at the end of the day you'll have to control your publishing process manually because you don't want to run into some performance issues and so forth under a scenario like that okay um, so there, again there's just there's multiple things that could be done here don't want to get into all the details of that and all the nuances and so forth. You really should get with us, and, and, and you know we should outline what's really necessary for you in your environment. 
Um, be aware that that one one idea here, probably the simplest and safest thing to do, is to propagate only critical availability events upstream like this, so that when you're in a failover mode, you're handling only the critical availability events and so forth through this cell. Okay. Um, the secondary path could also be disabled when when a failover is not occurring. Okay, so when the VVM server is up and running and healthy, the propagation from here up could be completely disabled and, and not even utilized. Okay, um, also be aware that the event propagation is it supports a two-way mechanism, so that when events get updated over here, the update to those events can propagate back to the correlation cell and then consequently update on back into the BBPM server as well as across this path here. All right. Now I, I want to be I want to caution everybody, and when you when you look at all these capabilities, you might think, oh, I could easily stand up this cell here and let it handle all of my event processing outbound, meaning cutting tickets automatically, generating notifications automatically, and all those kinds of things. You've got to be careful about setting that up and attempting to set that up. Okay, there are some caveats that have to be thought out and so forth when you do that. So the least risk methodology with this, and this is the one that I'm, I'm presenting here really, is to set up that standby cell and utilize that standby cell in a manual mode. Okay, And this, this will ensure that you don't have any disconnect between events that get processed in one cell versus events that get processed in another cell, and also the scenario where one event is, is being processed in the standby cell then the BBVM server comes back up online, and you've got some workflow that's, that's been initiated over on the remedy side, as an example, that was started from the standby cell. How do we bring that back over onto the BBVM server? Okay, so there's complexities there to, that you would have to work out and so forth. And, and so the, at the end of the day, the least risky method for this is to just utilize a standby cell. Um, as a visualization and manual event processing cell, uh, meaning users look at events and then they go manually um, handle the events from that from that point forward during the failover period as necessary, and limit those events to just the critical events um, indicating that things are down and so forth. All right, so um, when you think about the standby cell and outbound integrations, as well as the BBPM server outbound integrations, meaning generating notification, incident ticketing, run book automation, all that kind of stuff. Depending on what you're doing here, you would have one-way communications and or two-way communication, meaning when the event goes out, it gets processed, and then some information about that event gets propagated back like an incident ID and things like that. Okay, If it's a one-way communication, then there's really not any issues or concerns about keeping the workflow continuity working appropriately across the standby cell and the BVPM server. There's not a lot of concern there because you don't have any communications coming back. But for anything that is a two-way communication, you have to manage potential issues due to the, the BVPM server being online offline during the workflow process. Okay, and the workflow process not being completed, and you got to you got to be concerned about reconciling the workflow process across the two different sources of cells that are really handling the same event. Okay, 
Um, also be aware that this whole strategy it does not support certain functions that happen only within the BPPM server. So, for example, generating predictive alarms is obviously not going to happen when a BPPM server is in a restart mode. Uh, service modeling within the BPPM server is not going to be supported, obviously, um, which has you know GUI navigation um, and, and user workflow, user interaction type. Um, um, you know, things to be concerned about there. Also, probable cause analysis is totally unique to the BPPM server, so that's not going to happen there. Okay, so just be aware of those things. Next, think about, you know, thinking about continuous event operations and so forth, there's also this concept that, that we've introduced called ensuring event continuity. And it's, it's more of a technical discussion around managing events and where events should flow in the environment. So when you think about automated event processing and dependencies associated with automated event processing, there are some processes that are based on the fact that some events are dependent on other events. So simple example, up events automatically close corresponding down events. Um, okay events automatically close critical events that belong to the exact same object that's being monitored, the exact same parameter, instance, um, application that's being monitored on the same host and so forth. Causal events is another example. Causal events could be used to automatically close sympathetic events. Um, so a uh, simple example would be you've got, um, uh, you're, maybe you're monitoring remotely Everything's been, all of your monitoring is being done remotely through uh, a certain network path, and that network path goes down due to a router having a problem. And so you've got an event on the router, and you've got all these, these host down events indicating that these hosts are down because the monitor that's doing things remotely can't reach the hosts. But those host down events are all sympathetic events to the fact that the, the router is down. Okay? Um, so those, those are some event dependency and that's another event dependency example. Event correlation, any type of event correlation where we're correlating event, one event with another or one event with multiple events and so forth is another event dependency type of processing. So we've got this concept of dependent events where events are dependent on other events to support the appropriate processing. And we have to maintain event continuity across that. Across that. And what that really means is, is that all of the dependent events for any type of event dependency processing must be processed in the same cell where the, where the correlation and up, up versus down and so forth processing is going on. There's no, there is no cross-cell event evaluation. So one cell can't look over into another cell and say, oh, that event exists over in that other cell. I, I need to take action now on this, this particular event in, in my own cell. Um, that it, there's no communication like that. The only way we propagate event information from one cell to another is to actually propagate the events. So all event evaluation and processing happens within the local cell, and we need to maintain this event continuity concept. Um, and so how do we do that? Well, the first major recommendation is that, all, and this isn't a requirement, okay, you'll see that in a moment, but all, all events from a single source should be processed in the same cells upstream, okay? So the event path going upstream from any one uh, event source 
should always be the same for that event source, all the way up to the BTPM server. Okay. Um, now, when you look at this, there are certain event processing, you know, functions and so forth that are that fall into this category of being event dependent. Okay. So that all related events must be processed in the same cell. Okay. And this ultimately maintains event continuity. That's what we mean by event continuity here. Um, however, there is event processing that doesn't depend on other events. So basic things like refinement, basic filtering. Now, obviously, you could filter events based on other events coming in, but when we talk about basic filtering, I'm saying you've got a situation where you've got events coming into a cell. You can't filter them out from the source. It's a non-patrol type of situation and you just want to drop certain events because they're just noise, okay? So you look at, the, look at the content in those specific events and you drop them. Regulate's another very good example here, and, and just basic enrichment, okay? The, all of these types of functions um, are, are, are non-event dependent processing functions, and you don't have to really be concerned about making sure that the events all go to the same cell. You could forward them off to different different cells. And we actually have some customers doing that. There's a couple of customers. One in particular has set up a very, um, it's a very um, interesting arrangement and it's quite, um, it's quite ingenious actually where, where you are routing events to the appropriate destinations for correlation. But the lower tier cells can consume any event. And the reason for this is this environment is a very, very large environment and they've got a lot of different, um, you know, let's call them sub-environments or, or domains for end customers and so forth in their environment. Um, and, and to support that as well as scalability and so forth, they've got quite a significant distributed plan, a, a fairly significant distributed um, event processing, event cell processing architecture, you know, designed and so forth. And so the lower tier cells are designed so they can consume almost any event and then they can route the events to the appropriate locations upstream for correlation. And the advantage of doing that is that it reduces the, the amount of different configurations that have to be managed at the lower tiers in the environment, thereby making administration a little bit easier. Okay, so that's what we mean by ensuring event continuity. You need to make absolutely certain that any um, events that are dependent on other events, you know, all of those dependent events have to run through the same cells, and it's not just one cell um, that they have that you have to be concerned about. You need to think about the entire event processing path from the source all the way up to the final destination BPPM server. Okay, so let's talk about, you know, custom rules and policies. We're not going to go into a lot of detail on how to, you know, write MRL code here and all that. Um, that, that, that would be an entire class and so forth. Um, there, there are some things we'll get into here in a few slides coming up uh, about MRL. But the, the general thing we want to point out here is it's really important that you don't necessarily go in and edit our out-of-the-box policies. There's a couple of reasons for that. One is when we come to do an upgrade, that can make things more difficult for you depending on you know, the ability to leverage our migration tools and those kinds of things. It's really best if you, need to, if you need to edit something that you copy and you rename um, our configuration. Okay, so make a copy and then rename the configuration. And this applies to policies as well as any um, configurations in the out-of-the-box knowledge base files. 
including the .load files. All right? um, it, it, and, and the second reason for this is not just for upgrades and so forth. The second reason is that it makes it a lot easier to analyze the environment if you're having trouble um, when we look at it, it's much quicker and easier for us to, to see what's been changed and what hasn't been changed. So if you haven't, if you're not going to change something that's out of the box, then there's no need to, you know, copy it, rename it, or anything like that. You can just leave it as is and and continue to use it as is, you know, in a in a production manner. But for anything that's custom, it's much better if you copy and rename. And when you do the renaming, we recommend recommend that you pre do something like prepend your company name or an abbreviation of the company name to all the custom knowledge base files that you might create. Um, and also include your company name or some abbreviation of it in the description of policies. Okay? It makes it a whole lot easier to identify what's changed and what hasn't changed. And that's, that, that'll speed up the whole process of analyzing a problem or even just helping you, know, do, um, helping you in, a, in a services type of engagement. Um, document all custom configuration in the knowledge base files and in policies. So put the dot, you know, leverage the ability to comment lines out in, in the knowledge base files and describe what you're actually doing. You know, so if you've copied our configuration and then you're in, in the place where you're making a change, um, document what the change is for, what it's supposed to do, and in, in kind of a general sense how you how you're actually doing it. So if, if uh, um, you know, if you're referencing something external, you know, make a, make a note of what you're referencing external. And, and an example of that would be a refinement rule that goes and gathers some external data as part of a refinement process. Okay? And do the same thing for policies. Enter complete descriptions in all the policies. This will make it a lot easier to understand the purpose of the policy. And also put some information in there regarding technically what the policy, you know, what it does at a technical level, not necessarily an entire, you know, description of uh, an entire design description or something like that, but just a few notes about how it actually works technically. Okay. Um, all right. So when you're, when you're doing, creating custom configurations and so forth, one of the questions that comes up quite often is, is when do I use policies versus rules and, and what are the implications and so forth? Okay, so when to use policies first? Well, leverage policies before rules in general. Now, there's some specific reasons to use rules, and we'll get to those in a moment. But in general, start off looking, you know, to use the, the policies and so forth. Um, also, policies are, are very good for configurations that change often or are expected to change often. And by the way, as I use the term policies here, I'm using that in a very general sense. There's out-of-the-box policies that we provide. You can also create your own data classes, and you could have certain MRL created around those data classes and so forth. And it, it, those also apply to have the same concepts here. Okay. Um, another reason to, to use policies in data classes and so forth is when UI configuration is required. So in other words, you expect to users, maybe lower level administrators or whatever, not somebody that knows MRL, but somebody that needs to come in and make, make changes, like a super user would come in and make changes to these configurations, and those, those configurations are expected to change periodically, okay, um, or often. Um, that's another good reason for using policies. Also, policies and data classes support the concept of not having to recompile and restart the cells. Okay? So that, that's another reason for using them in scenarios when you expect to make changes to the configuration. 
Okay. Also, keep in mind that out-of-the-box policies support quite a number of different capabilities, and some of the, the most used ones are the dynamic enrichment policies, um, and dynamic blackout policies would be another one. There's others there as well, you know, simple things like uh, filtering, um, you know, to support deduplication and suppression as well. Um, there's timeout policies. There, there's a number of different, you know, policies that you can use out of the box there that are quite handy. And if, if those need to be changed periodically, um, then it's a great idea to use to use policies for them. So when would you use rules? Well, for configurations that are not expected to change, so you know, basic things like basic filtering, you know that you are always going to drop certain events and you're never going to change that. Um, that's a good candidate for setting up in a rule. And the advantage of setting up in the rule is um, a, it's something you're never going to revisit, so you're not cluttering your your policy configuration screen in the admin UI with things that are just sitting there never to be changed. Okay. Another advantage is that for some rules, and I don't, I don't, um, I'm not implying that that filtering and suppression within the policies has performance issues. It certainly doesn't. Okay. But there is more overhead when you use policies. So in some cases, rules will have less overhead. Um, another example for using rules is if, you're look, if you look at our correlation policy out of the box, it's fairly robust, but it, it, there are certain things that it doesn't do. So for example, if you wanted to execute a certain external operation based on a correlation having occurred, okay, then you would most likely want to go do that in your own correlation um, rule. You go create your own correlation rule. We actually have some examples and some how-to videos on how to do that uh, posted on BMC communities. Okay, um, So more complex processing um, is, is another very good candidate for coding things in rules. Okay, um, All right, so one last comment in this area and this is, I wouldn't necessarily consider this a, a quote-unquote best practice at this point, but be aware that there are some folks in the field, um, a, a very expert individual in, in creating uh, knowledge bases and so forth, has, has been working on creating this standard knowledge base to make administration more easily accomplished through um, policies and data classes and so forth. And I know that some customers actually have that implemented in their environment. It's been working pretty well. Okay, So be, be aware of that. Um, and, and what we're talking about here does not diverge from you know, that, the, that, that knowledge base. And we're also considering looking at that knowledge base in more, in more depth internal at BMC. It just takes time to, you know, to bring enhancements and things like that into the product, as you might imagine. Okay, so performance and scalability is a really key area that we need to focus on here. Uh, performance is impacted by many conditions and factors, okay? And I'm throwing this up here first because you're not going to see a bunch of numbers regarding specific scenarios around event management as we go through this. Um, it's it's um, the, the capabilities within the product are extensive and very significant and very flexible. And there's a lot of things that go on with event management, so there's a lot of different factors that drive scalability. Event volume is obviously a key factor. I mean, that's the, the data you're processing, the volume of events. Incoming um, event load is, 
you know, obviously a key one. Another key one in under this area is events that are maintained and stored in the in the um, in, in this in any in any particular cell. So how large is the cell database of events? Okay, has an impact on scalability. Um, number of policies enabled. Number of knowledge base configurations loaded. The complexity of the knowledge base. The complexity of the policies. Number of records that may be stored in the dynamic enrichment and or dynamic um, blackout policies and so forth, or any other data class, okay? All of these things in concert have an impact on scalability as well as the operating system, the machine, the resources available, and so forth, okay? So it's not really possible or practical for BMC to provide, you know, specific numbers. And, and the danger of providing specific numbers for, you know, lots of different scenarios and so forth is that you may take one number and say, okay, that makes sense, and you go apply it to your environment, and your environment has some change in one or more of these different areas compared to what those, you know, baseline numbers were, were, were uh, derived from. And now you're skewed and you're off. So approaching scalability and performance from an event management cell perspective, there's a few key things you need to look out for that we're going to look at under tuning as we, as we get further into this, and some certain things that you should and should not do that we're going to look at here as well. And then you also should be observing the performance of the, of the cells, which you're going to notice anyway from a, a UI perspective and an event processing perspective. Okay, so the approach around managing performance and scalability is, is to do things right, follow the best practices that we're going to get into here, and, and properly tune things and um, keep yourself out of trouble, basically, rather than trying to target specific numbers. Okay, now before I get into more detail on this, one number that obviously comes up quite often is how many events can a cell process? In some of our documentation, you know, this number of events per day and things like that. Um, probably the most valuable number is the number of events that a cell can process per second. That gives you a good understanding of, you know, how healthy it can run under a certain load. And I've seen this number all over the place based on these factors being all over the place, okay? I've seen conditions where we can support about 100 events per second. Our testing in-house has shown that we, under, under normal conditions, or let's call it typical conditions, we can almost always handle somewhere near 25 events per second, okay? I recommend that you, you know, plan on sizing and so forth from, a, from the perspective of 25 events per second. And keep in mind that an event really should be an actionable item. It should be an actionable message. If you're getting 25 events per second, you got a really serious issue in your environment, okay? Um, that could be an event flood, right? Um, events are, are generally something that, that, you know, we detect and then we go take action on them from a human perspective. Somewhere in the process, we're taking action from a human perspective. We automatically cut a ticket um, or we automatically generate a notification so that human beings get involved. And, and as we all know, a human being can't possibly handle 25 events per second, or even a large organization would have, you know, very significant difficulty reacting to that, um, you know, that type of event, event flow um, across an environment. 
Okay, so performance and scalability. It starts, in my opinion, with regulating event traffic at the source, which we'll talk more about as we get into this, um, but also handling the the, the um, configuration of the event management cells from a processing perspective properly. Now, this is just one example that I'm going to talk about here, but when you look at the event management cell, it provides these different rule phases. So when events come in, the first phase that they could be processed through is the refinement phase. So if there is a refinement rule or some policy that, that you know, does, invokes a refinement on a particular event, it's going to get processed according to that rule. The next step is filtering, regulate, and so forth, okay? And each one of these guys, the order in which, this represents the order from, from bottom to top. It's the order in which the rule phases take effect on events, all right? Um, or you could think of it as, as the, the order in which events are processed through the phases. Now, any one rule could skip a phase because there may not be a, um, I should say any one event could skip a rule phase because there may not be a rule that, that selects that event, so to speak, to process it. So it could skip any one of these phases. So the, one of the key things here is to understand these capabilities and, and do your refinement first and your filtering second and regulate third and, and on upstream, and understand also that an event does not get stored in the repository until it reaches the new or update phase, okay? And that has implications on scalability because the volume of events that you store in the repository has an impact on scalability. So you may be doing certain things with events from a, a regulate perspective. They've passed through a filter and they're being regulated but they're not yet stored in the repository. So regulate again. That goes back to the concept of the logon failures I talked about a little bit, a little, a little while back. Um, you, you may, you know, have certain events that you want to quote unquote regulate like that, and not do anything with them until the occurrences of them reaches a certain level or something like that. And that helps you control how many events get stored in the repository. Okay. Another concept that I've more or less spelled out here on this slide is. Think about the fact that you've got the ability to consume an event, it doesn't get filtered out, it reaches the new phase, you've now stored it in the repository, you might have a win clause set up, and, and you could set up a win clause that does something inappropriately. Maybe when, when an event is updated um, with a value, an incremental value or something like that, you then go drop it, okay? Well, that doesn't really make sense. You should, re you should leverage the regulate capability, and you should also consider filtering as well. If you can drop an event based on nothing but the event criteria, then it doesn't make sense to let that event get up to the new phase and then do some correlation on it and then drop it later. Okay? So think about the design of any custom MRL code um, that you write and the event processing that you're doing and don't instrument things that cause unnecessary event processing or unnecessary storage of events. Okay, so some other things to think about from a scalability perspective is that the, the um, win clauses, timers, and somewhat match regecs are some key functions that are somewhat expensive. Now, I'm not suggesting that you should not use these. I'm just suggesting that you limit their usage to the things that really require them, okay? Think about the business requirements 
and so forth, and, and make sure that you are using these when they're needed and only when they're needed. Match regex is not so much of an issue anymore. It used to be in older versions of the cells. Um, it, it would, if it was used excessively, it could impart some performance degradation. Um, that's been improved. Um, with the cells in, in more, you know, more recent releases and so forth. But it, there is still some very nominal degradation uh, associated with it compared to using the built-in string functions. So we recommend that you use the built-in string functions, especially for, a, for simple event evaluations. So if you're just doing a simple substring or, you know, simple operation, string operations on events, it's not really necessary to use the match regex functions. doesn't mean you shouldn't use it. Um, but we recommend generally that you limit it to the more complex evaluations that regex obviously supports well. Okay? Avoid using excessive collectors. That's a really good, good one here too. Um, do not create collectors on the lower tier cells. Okay? Collectors can impart you know, a, a certain amount of, of um, performance um, degradation and so forth if you have lots of them. And there's not necessarily a need to put them on the lower tier cells because they're primarily used for visualization purposes. That, that's their whole purpose is to collect events into a particular bucket. Okay. Um, do not load collectors that are not needed. Okay. Um, and that includes out of the box collectors that aren't needed. Use collectors. Do not. <coughs> excuse me. Use collectors for event categorizations that do not change. So. So uh, things like we have an out-of-the-box collector for status as an example, okay? You don't expect to change that collector over time. You're going to use it, you know, everybody's going to use those categories to look at things. Let me just click on all the critical events. I want to look at them right now, okay? That, that collector is a great solution for, you know, for that use case. Um, and you probably wouldn't change that collector very often at all. So, um, you know, use it that way. Don't use collectors for categorizations that are going to change. You expect to change often, okay? Be careful with dynamic collectors. We have an example out of the box that um, under certain conditions and, and environments, we'd recommend that you don't even use that collector. Don't load it. We'll talk about that here in a moment. Um, encourage use of filters in the UI. So users you know, different users want to look at things different ways. They want to go look at certain events based on certain criteria, and that criteria changes from time to time. Um, and it may change in one session and within 15 minutes while they're, you know, looking at different events, okay? So encourage the users to use the filters in the UI and to use the search capabilities in the UI, okay? And also keep in mind that any changes to collectors requires a restart of the cell. They're, they're another piece of MRL that gets compiled and you have to restart the cell or, and or reload things to get them to take effect and so forth, okay? All right, so an example of, of collectors and when to use them and when not to use them. So out of the box, these are, I haven't created any, any custom collectors here. These are out of the box collectors. There's a collector by users, a collector for all events that you can you know, expand here, a collector by status that I talked about a moment ago. Um, you know, great thing to be able to just go in here and quickly click on all open events and be able to see them, okay? There's also a patrol collector. Okay. This patrol collector is actually driven by this BII for P underscore collectors dot MRL file. Okay. It's, a, it's a collector definition file. Okay. Now, in this very simple little lab environment, as you can see here, I have one, two, three patrol agents. 
and that's nothing. I mean, that, that's you know that that's nothing. So this collector's kind of nice for me in my little you know lab test go break things environment. However, a customer that has eight thousand servers, okay, would would this make sense? I, I say it wouldn't. Okay, so think about it from a user perspective, not just from a performance and you know scalability perspective, but from a user perspective. Is the user really going to come in here? in an environment that has 8,000 servers monitored by a patrol, are they going to come in here and expand the patrol tree and then drill down you know, through 8,000 servers looking for a particular server? Probably not. That's not going to be efficient. It's a lot better for them to go in here and enter the device to search for okay, and or use the search field up here. So in a large environment, recommend that we don't load this file as a collector. You're, 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 you know, you're basically loading something up that's going to cause, likely to cause performance degradation through the UI, and it's also almost unnecessary. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's so busy that it's, it's not useful to the users because you've got 8,000 servers there. You know, it doesn't make sense to scroll down through 8,000 servers versus searching for the server up here. Okay. Um, however, in a smaller environment or a situation where you've got, you know, a BPPM server that only has, it's only processing data and events from maybe a few hundred patrol agents and it's got other stuff coming in from other sources, then you may go ahead and load this collector. Okay. So um, just, you know, a tip there on collectors, use them appropriately, don't use them inappropriately. Also, leverage event indexing capabilities if possible in the and in, in where possible in any custom MRL rules. We have some indexing capabilities already configured in some of our out-of-the-box um, rules, and the mcxp.mrl file that defines how patrol events are processed is a pretty good example of this. Basically, this index um, that we use this indexing strategy, what we've done is we, we've created an index in a data class. The data class is called patrol underscore IDX, short for index, okay? And this using clauses um, leverages that index along with uh, data associated with older events, and, and it ties the data from the older events to the index based on this patrol underscore UID value, okay? So if the if these ID values match up, okay, in addition to all this other content that we're evaluating here, then what ends up happening based on the new event coming in, that triggers a close of the old event. So this this is how we automatically close events that are associated with the, the exact same monitored um, object, you know, parameter, instance, application class, host, and so forth. Okay. And this construct here of using an index speeds that process up, okay? And the way it speeds that up is this data class basically leverages key values. So P origin, P agent port, these are the key values that it's leveraging. And actually it doesn't leverage this last one, it's just leveraging the three, okay? So if you have you know, large numbers of events in an environment like you may, may with a patrol in a very large environment, and you're needing to set up some processing to handle those events and so forth, you could leverage the same concept um, against those other types of events and so forth. 
And here's, here's what the patrol index actually looks like. This is out of the box, by the way. This is what it actually looks like um, in, in the um, admin console. If you go down to the data classes and, and look at patrol index, you'll see the actual values and so forth that are stored here. Okay, so some do's and don'ts on performance and scalability. And I realize we're starting to go over past the half hour, and we had our, our little hiccup with the, the um, audio earlier, so I'll try to speed this up. Um, definitely avoid sending excessive events, okay? Um, that's, and, and I mean sending from the source. Um, disable all policies that are not used, including out-of-the-box policies. Um, uh, definitely code MRL appropriately, like I've talked about and I know this is some high-level information around MRL, um, but you know you, you need to you need to code appropriately and uh, think about performance with everything that you do when you start coding MRL. Um, do not load objects in the knowledge base that are not used. This includes out-of-the-box configurations. And when I say objects, I mean things like you know everything, data classes that you're not going to use, um, event classes that you may not use. Um, records that you're not going to use, collectors that you're not going to use, okay? If a configuration is not used, do not load it and do not enable it. Go in and disable any out-of-the-box policies that you're not using, as an example, okay? Also, don't load records into data classes or match tables that are not going to be used. There's no sense in having you know, large numbers of records just sitting there that are never going to be used. Now, I, from a kind of a scalability and numbers perspective here, we've seen environments that have literally tens of thousands of records, you know, many tens of thousands of records in um, a, a policy data class or a match table and so forth, and we haven't seen performance problems with that. So um, we, we can handle a tremendous amount of data there, but there's really no sense in, in loading unnecessary records there, both from a performance and scalability perspective, as well as just you know, managing and maintaining and administering the environment. Now, some key cell tuning and troubleshooting tips here. Not going to get into actual tips on troubleshooting. It's going to make a point about troubleshooting and referencing the docs. But there's a couple of key things to think about from tuning cells that we see quite often in, in environments. And these are the most common things that we run into. The cell is, has gotten to a point where it's fairly, it's very scalable actually if it's set up properly and tuned properly. Okay? And, and again, these are the two things that we run into in the environment periodically. One of them is state builder running too often. Okay, so State Builder is the process that synchronizes data and cleans up things between memory and the actual MCDB database that is the database for the cell. Okay, just so it's, think of it as a, a file for the cell. It's a, fi it's a file structure for the cell database. It's not like an RDBS or anything like that. This thing should not run more than once per 10 minutes. Okay, it should not be running more often than that. Okay, and there is um, an implication here associated with this, the state build size may have to be increased for heavily loaded cells, okay? Um, so you may have to go in and adjust the state build size to ensure that this thing is not running, you know, faster than, than every 10 minutes and so forth. Um, so there's a relationship between these guys, and, and you may have to make some, do some tuning there and so forth. Also, another really key point is the event database size configuration needs to be right. Okay? Um, the size required depends on the event load and event retention. Okay? The appropriate size does. Okay? 
Um, so just as an example, if you have 100,000 events per day that you're processing, and on average an event remains open for about six hours, and clo the closed events are retained for three days, and then the cleanup interval is the default of one hour, okay? For this particular example, you would need a, an event database size of at least 330K, right? Now, you know, how do we go about calculating that, right? Well, we've got a little Excel spreadsheet that you can leverage to go calculate this value. And this will be posted with the recording. So you can download that, that little spreadsheet and use it to calculate what your, your minimum value should be for the size of the event database based on this criteria here. Okay, troubleshooting, there are a number of different points in the online documentation that go over, you know, common issues and how to, how to troubleshoot them. Definitely leverage that. If you're having issues, go look there first um, and, and see if that might resolve, see if what you find there may resolve your problems, okay. Now, I've talked a lot about event processing and the different, you know, different event processing functions. There's correlate, there's regulate, there's, you know, the filtering and, um, and new rules and all that kind of stuff, right, and the, and the different phases of rules and whatnot. Um, you, you have to understand that a excessive event processing on the BPPM server can definitely cause performance problems for the BPPM server, okay? And this is not because the BPPM server is, is, you know, not scalable enough and things like that. You know, some, some folks may argue with me, but you've got to remember what the BPPM server does. It's processing a tremendous amount of data. It is doing probable cause analysis, supporting probable cause analysis, all these different functions that we've brought together into one application, including probable cause analysis and service modeling and yada, 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 okay? It's also a statistical analytics engine. So trended data that's coming in and being baseline is continuously being analyzed and statistical calculations run against it to go and, and automatically generate quote-unquote abnormalities. So there's a lot of stuff going on in the BBPM server to begin with, and we don't want to unindate it with unnecessary events. And then from a pure you know, human workflow perspective, we don't want to be looking at a bunch of unnecessary events anyway, okay? Um, keep in mind key things like abnormalities are actually stored in the BBPM server event management cell as any other event type of message would be. Although they're not really events, from a workflow perspective, I do not consider them events, and I don't treat them as, as events. They're an abnormality that could be an event. They're mainly used for probable cause analysis, right? So the point here is, is you may have a lot of abnormalities sitting there, okay? Um, remember that the BBM server cell handles service modeling like I talked about. It handles integrations to, to external processes and so forth. There's also synchronization going on between the BBM server cell, the MCDB for it, and the application server processes that make up the BBPM server application, okay? So this guy, the point here is this guy is very busy, okay? And we, and we don't want to unindate him with unnecessary events, and we don't want to unindate him with unnecessary event processing. So the concept of locating event processing functions in the appropriate location in the environment is very important. This is one of the reasons we have the distributed cell technology, and we want to push certain um, you know, uh, certain processing down to different cells. So 
limit event processing the BBM server to these basic functions here. Processing BBPM server generated events, obviously it, it has to process the events that it generates, such as predictive alarms, okay, and any other baseline related performance alarms, okay. Uh, service impact related processing, obviously, from an event perspective. Appropriate integrations from an event perspective. You may be receiving events from um, you know, change events coming in from BSA or even from some other external source. We've got a customer that's consuming our event format from an external source to track change events and tie them to probable cause analysis. Okay. Notification from X Matters, events, you know, updates coming back in from X Matters would be another example there. Um, cutting tickets, you know, all those kinds of things, right? So, and, and then push the lower level event processing down to the distributed lower tier cells. That really is a must, okay? So how do you evaluate and go through this process? Well, this little chart will kind of help you get started. So when you think about the event operation of filtering, well, your first choice for filtering should be at the source, not the first or lower tier event cell, but actually the source that's sending us the event. If possible, don't send the event to us if you don't need it. Patrol supports that very well today with the filter uh, policies and so forth. You, you can control exactly what you want to send up from patrol and what you don't want to send up. Okay? So there's no reason to send events from patrol that you're just going to drop at the first tier cell. It, it just doesn't make sense. Okay? Um, so, so filter at the source first if possible. We recognize there will be certain scenarios where you can't actually filter from the source. So your next option for filtering would be the second, uh, second option is to filter at the lowest tier event management cell. You know, we're talking about I got this event, I can't filter it from the source, but I don't want it, so I'm just going to drop it. Okay. Then your next option for filtering, if you can't do it there because you need to do some correlation before you get rid of it and drop it, then drop it in the correlation cell. Okay. And then your very last choice for doing any kind of filtering would be in the BBPM server. And, and you know, don't generate events within the BBPM server that you don't want. We, I looked at a, a scenario once where a customer looked at, and, and it wasn't just a customer, it was us also, so I'm not going to throw the customer in the bus. Um, we, we had a scenario where the concept of predicting of predictive alarming was you know readily accepted. It was a great idea. Hey, let's go do this. Let's let's set up predictive alarms for this. We need a predictive alarm for that also. We need a predictive alarm for this other thing over here. Okay, and we've talked about best practices around configuration and predictive alarming and so forth. There's specific parameters that make sense for predictive alarming, and there's others that just really don't. Okay, so be careful that you don't generate unnecessary events in the BBPM server itself. Okay, and so this approach, this location approach um, for these different types of event operations, you know, it, it applies to all these different concepts here. Enrichment, deduplication, normalization, okay. Um, if you've got the ability to deduplicate from the source, then do it. And you can do that with patrol, okay, um, by the way. So, um, 
Next area here, and I won't go through all of these. Some of these are relatively obvious, so we'll kind of move on in the interest of time here. You can, you know, review these later for yourself. But translation, you know, obviously when we receive SNMP traps, there's some degree of translation that's done by the SNMP adapter and the map files and all that that go with it. But you may have some additional translation that needs to be done in the actual cell after the cell receives those, those traps as events. Always do that at the lowest tier cell, okay? And, and SNMP traps, as we've talked about before, are um, a scenario where you want to consume them in a dedicated cell for handling SNMP traps. And you may have multiple cells that do that in an extremely large environment where you may have multiple locations spread around the world for, for handling that, okay? And another, another point is, is use the cells appropriately. They're event processors. They're not a, a, an SNMP trap, you know, receiving and forwarding uh, utility. That, that's not their intent. Their, their intent is an event processor, so use them as intended. Okay, some general recommendations. Um, do use fully qualified domain names for all configurations. So recommend that you review your cell dir files as an example, and the um, you know your admin cell configuration files. All of your all your configuration files really should have fully qualified domain names in them. Um, so that those can all easily be resolved over the network and so forth in case there's some kind of a change somewhere. Um, use dedicated event management cells for large event sources, meaning external event sources. So external meaning like not patrol, you know, non-BMC stuff. SNMP traps is a great example. Events coming in from SCOM would be another example. Integration um, from Tivoli and or NetCool is another good example. Th these scenarios assume that you've decided that the BBPM server is going to be like your manager of managers, and instead of using one of these guys for your, you know, manager of managers, you're consuming events from them into BPPM. Okay. Um, do not set up propagation policies or rules that cause events to be propagated back to the propagating cell. Okay. That's just an example of something that doesn't make sense. So, you know, be careful with what you're doing, what you're configuring. Um, check and recheck. Um, in other words, you know, not, not very many people would set this up deliberately. It would be a mistake when someone sets this up. But just make sure you're not doing something like that. You don't want to create a circular situation where you're propagating events back to the same cell that's handling the events, okay? Um, do not forward informational events as, as events to the event management cells or the BBPM servers unless they really are required for event processing. You know, the patrol agent generates a lot of, patrol agents at KMs can generate a lot of informational events. Um, and you could have informational events coming in from SNMP traps as an example. Is, it, is, is this message or this event really something that we need to act upon? That's how you need to be thinking. Events should be actionable messages, not just information, okay? Um, Distribute event cells as, re as required based on event loads and event sources. Use event adapters only where appropriate, okay? So use patrol for log file monitoring as an example. We have a log adapter that's available with the event management cells, and it has specific capabilities, and it's good at log file monitoring. But if you have patrol already out on the box, um, you know, monitoring logs for, that specific app for a specific application running on that box, then it, it makes sense to use patrol for that, okay, and, and not, not use a, an adapter from the cell perspective for that. Um, use the log adapter only for cases where patrol won't be installed and does not meet the requirements. 
um, or maybe a situation where you've got a bunch of log files that are centrally stored and so forth. And, and, and really, if you've got that kind of a situation where you're doing a lot of log file monitoring, we'd recommend that you look at um, you know, a product that we have coming um, to handle that. Okay. Um, okay, so also do not use the REST-based web services adapter on the BVM server to process raw incoming events. All right, so there, there is a, a REST-based web services component that is, runs on the BVPM server that one of its capabilities, it has many capabilities, but one of them is to actually consume incoming events. Right? Um, you don't want to consume raw incoming events. By raw events, what I mean is you know, events coming in from an external source that, that need a lot of pre-processing and things like that. That needs to be, needs to be handled in the lower tier cells. Now, we do consume events back and forth um, through that mechanism, through the REST-based web services. For example, we consume a change management event from ITSM back into BPPM to set up and trigger a blackout, um, blackouts in BPPM for a maintenance period that's associated with the change, right? Don't go and leverage that for some mass um, event collection into, into a BPPM server, okay? Um, and also don't install additional event management cells on the BPPM server. That doesn't make sense. You should do your pre-processing in the environment of events below the, the BPPM server. Now some quick tips here and we'll wrap up here. I've talked a lot about event reduction um, and the importance of that, of, of not flooding the environment with unnecessary noise from the start, from the source ultimately. Um, it's not only from an event, you know, performance perspective, but this is also from a, a, just a sheer human workflow perspective, okay? So there's some, some obvious things that we've talked about here that anybody would know, really, you know, filter at the source, filter at the lower tier cells. Um, but some other things you may not have think, thought about in, in some more sophisticated event management configurations is the ability to regulate, okay? Uh, regulate events down at the lower tier cells where appropriate and don't forward them up unless they need to be forwarded up, okay? Correlation is another example. If you're not leveraging that, you probably have some use case scenarios where that makes sense. And not only will the correlation reduce the, the sheer volume of events that are you know, sent all the way upstream, but also you may get more intelligence out of the event processing by doing the correlation, okay? Um, some other things that you may not have thought about from a pure patrol perspective. Um, patrol has the ability to send events only after all recovery actions have failed. Okay, so there's various recovery actions provided out of you know in different knowledge modules across the solution set. Um, the simplest example is Windows services. By default, we will automatically attempt to restart a Windows service when when and if that service goes down. Okay, um, and there's a recovery action that does that. Now, by default, out of the box, we also generate an event and that event gets sent up. But do you really need that for every scenario? If you have services and or processes that are known and expected to stop and you want patrol to automatically restart them when that happens, that's a known condition and you expect it, do you really need an alarm on that? Well, you might want an alarm for reporting purposes to go get that problem fixed, okay? Um, or you might not. If you don't need the event for reporting purposes, 
it makes a lot more sense to not send the event unless the recovery actions fail and then send the event. So be aware of that. And, and this configuration is easily set up through the policies in BPPM 9.5 CMA. You'll see it in, in, in the, um, you know, the monitoring configuration policies. Um, you know, so leverage that if you're not already leveraging that. And it helps reduce noise as well. Um, also, another concept here is to leverage the what's called the composite parameters knowledge module that's part of the operating system knowledge modules. This knowledge module allows you to look at different conditions um, simultaneously and not generate an event unless all the conditions meet the criteria. Okay, and I realize it's a very general statement, but a, a good example here is that Microsoft actually they, they, they have a they have an article on this. They actually recommend monitoring CPU so that when CPU goes over 95%, you don't just generate an alarm at 95%. Instead, you look at it, and if it's over 95% and the CPU Q-length is over 15 for a period of time, then generate the alarm. And, and under most conditions, they, they believe and, and they, they you know, recommend in their best practices that that is, is um, and this isn't actually in a quote-unquote best practice for Microsoft, just a knowledge article. Um, they, they, they recommend that this is an appropriate condition to look for an alarm on, okay, from a CPU monitoring perspective. And, and they have a whole discussion about this on, on their website and in their, in their knowledge article and so forth on this. Um, and, and they go into more detail, you know, beyond just these points here. So um, leverage the, the ability to use the, the composite knowledge module um, KM that comes with the operating system knowledge modules to facilitate this kind of thing. And, and you get a couple of things out of this. It's not just event reduction, but you get more intelligent eventing out of this as well. Okay. Um, then, of course, you know, there's the performance monitoring and so forth that we can do and the baseline and so forth up in the BPPM server as well for this. This is just one example, and you may or may not apply this to your environment. It, it makes sense, I think, for some applications and some, some, um, uh, some servers, um, you know, Windows servers. Others, it may not. Um, so that wraps up this session. Uh, very much appreciate you attending. You can get this information and a lot of other information on the BMC website locations that you see here, as usual. And uh, we look forward to providing you guys more information going forward with, uh, with additional uh, best practice sessions. Thank you very much. Cedric, back to you. All right. Thanks, Hudson. And thank you, everyone, for uh, attending today. And we will post everything <clears throat> to our BMC community site once uh, we have finalized the documentation. Uh, once again, uh, we appreciate your attendance and our patience with us uh, concerning the uh, phone problems earlier, and we look forward to having you in the next session. Thank you very much. Again,